What if the key to a fair and just society lies in the interconnectedness of our inner and outer worlds? Welcome to Lenses of Liberation, the podcast where we unlock the secrets to a brighter future for all. I'm Rachel Snyder, and along with my co-host, Joanne Singh, we will embark on a transformative journey unraveling the vibrant tapestry of social change and weaving together diverse voices to create a world where no one is left behind. Join us as we engage with thought leaders, experts, and visionaries across a wide range of topics from diversity, equity, and inclusion to regenerative business, impact investing, healing, wellness, and so much more. Lenses of Liberation is more than a podcast. It's a movement of changemakers actively building a brighter future by reshaping the world one lens at a time. Today, we have Manesh Gurn with us, and we are diving deep into the science of psychedelics and their relationship between science and indigenous wisdom. Manesh is a neuroscientist with over 20 co-authored or authored scientific publications on psychedelics, brain networks, and related topics. He is currently conducting research on brain mechanisms underlying psychedelic drugs in collaboration with global leaders in the psychedelic space. Manesh is also the Chief Research Officer at the Canadian Psychedelic Bioscience Company, Entheotech Bioscience, and he runs a YouTube channel and Instagram page called The Psychedelic Scientist, where he discusses the latest topics in psychedelic science in an easy-to-understand but non-superficial form. This was an incredible conversation. Rachel and I could not stop talking about the insights that we gained in our conversation with Manesh. We talk about the pros of science and taking a scientific approach to psychedelics. And we also talk about the limitations. We dive a little bit deeper into Manesh's own journey and how he came into this space. And we also got a little vulnerable and talked about the parts of ourselves that we are still yet not liberated. We are so excited for this conversation. If you do not already follow Manesh on Instagram or on YouTube, highly, highly recommend that you do. There's so much to be gained from being connected to Manesh. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to today's episode, Manesh. We are so excited to have this conversation with you um, about bridging the world of science and spirituality and everything in between that. Um, to kick us off, I'd love to just hear in your own words how you describe yourself and your mission and um, yeah, where you're up to these days. Yeah, for sure. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. Uh, so me right now, I just, I'm just finishing up my PhD in neuroscience. I actually submitted my PhD dissertation yesterday and we'll be defending it next month. So I'm basically done. Um, and so the, but that getting to this point obviously is a long time coming. And uh, for me, um, if we could go way back uh, to when I was a teenager, at that time, um, I really got into meditation and Eastern spirituality through some influences I had at my high school and then also at this place that I worked at the time and was just, you know, it, extremely fascinated by the concept of different states of consciousness, of purifying and stealing and mastering the mind and all these things. And it inspired in me just a love for learning about these topics in general. And I used to, I, you know, I still do just read a lot of nonfiction and read a lot about these topics. And that when I was around 17, it led me to try some mushrooms with a friend. 
Um, she got some from her older sister. We did at the beach here in Vancouver. And um, that experience really opened me up and um, made me much more introspective and reflective and changed my relationship to myself and saw how I was actively creating my reality by the way I thought about it and the way I thought about myself. And so path that has led me on is um, finding ways to both learn more about how this thing, how these things work psychologically and at the level of the brain, and then also contributing to the world's knowledge. Because I realized a lot of these things are in such, in such early stages in terms of how they're studied and how they're understood scientifically. And along the way, you know, over the years, I participated in many psilocybin experiences, you know, ceremonial, but also not ceremonial. Uh, ayahuasca ceremonies, peyote, you know, all the things. And I've really engaged with um, my own healing journey, my own transformational mm -hmm. journey through these things, while simultaneously reading the research literature and reading books and also conducting research. And so my whole background is in merging the experiential side and the very personal side with the objective scientific in doing that and as, in as uh, rigorous way as possible that bridge that creates bridges between these different areas. And so these days, I, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm finishing my PhD in neuroscience. I do brain imaging research related to psychedelics and also the default mode network, which is this interesting network in the brain that we could talk about. Um, and then I'm also chief research officer at a psychedelic bioscience company. Uh, we do ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, and in the future, we'll do MDMA and psilocybin as well as regulations change. And then I also have a YouTube channel and Instagram page where I create um, scientific content well, like a uh, popular science content where I try to translate the scientific research in ways that anybody can understand to try to make it more accessible and provide a rigorous and reliable source of information on psychedelics and, and also just like mental health and neuroscience more generally. And um, so, yeah, so I, I keep myself quite busy, as you can tell, but a lot of things are around this idea of mental health, psychedelics, personal transformation, healing, spirituality, and all those things wrapped up in that. I'm really curious, like, if you're willing to share a bit of what changed in your view of the world when you had that experience in your late when, teens. And mm -hmm. like, as you mentioned, like it kind of changed how you view yourself or your model of the world as I would, I would frame it. Would you be willing, willing to share what changed? <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, so um, I remember distinctly having the experience that um, I was separated from Manesh, this character named Manesh, right? It's like, mm -hmm. here's Manesh with his uh, identity, his thoughts, his views on things. And I was like seeing it from this uh, third, third person perspective almost. And I was able to see how, one, I am not my thoughts. I'm not my identity. Manesh is a concept that's created in the mind, you know, via being reflected by others, via whatever. And just um, seeing how like myself and everyone else um, in usual everyday life is in this one way of perceiving reality that we think is how reality is. We get locked in tunnel vision, which is like, you know, influenced by our concepts, our past experiences, our culture. And we have this particular frame on reality. But what, what psilocybin showed me was how there's so much beyond that. And it's just like one of many equally valid ways of perceiving reality, right? And so then it made me realize how, uh, as I said before, we're actively creating our reality in, in by virtue of the concepts, frameworks, beliefs that we bring to it. And so then the question is, you know, are there higher ways of perceiving the world? Are there more healthy ways, more expansive ways? 
and how can we facilitate those and how, you know, how can we um, understand what they are and, and also, you know, what's, what's possible here basically. And so this is what really inspired in me, just like the idea of always seeking to push the boundaries of who I am. My whole life has been since then, I suppose, even before then, I guess, but particularly since then is like, what are my edges? What are the boundaries of my comfort zone? What are the boundaries of who I think I am and what's possible? And how can I push that? And I'm always seeking experiences to push that. Um, because it, from this insight that we live in these boxes, but how can we make our box as big as possible? And so mm. I think that's a way it's really affected me. So interesting to me, um, this experience that you had, uh, it came from you being explorative and seeking a new experience. And uh, it did not come from a doctor's office or a prescription. And something that Joanne and I talk often about is the this new insert, this, this surge of humans seeking to take their wellness and their mental health into their own hands. And the possibilities that are presented in psychedelics for people to have um, ownership over their healing journey um, and to do it in a different way than maybe it's traditionally occurred in the last couple hundred years here. Um, so I think a question that that has come up for us is, um, you know, especially for someone like you who is currently existing right on the precipice of of medicine and and kind of psychedelic spirituality and and all the rest. You know, what are the implications as more people shift to um, a model that that maybe takes their wellness and their healing into their own hands. And what does that maybe mean for the world of medicine? Yeah, I think it's really powerful. Um, as you're kind of saying, if I understood you correctly, like psychedelics essentially empower people to take a more active role in their healing journey, right? Yeah. Whereas in traditional psychiatric drugs, you're given an SSRI or some kind of antidepressant or what have you. And you take it and you just like take it every day and you magically start your mood stabilizes and you don't really do anything. Um, yeah. And, and it also, it also is just hiding your symptoms and not really tackling what's going on for you. Right. So I think it's amazing how psychedelics are this tool that, you know, when used in mental health contexts are fundamentally based on working through your stuff, working through your shit, you know, it's like going deep into your psyche, going into your mind, processing memories, um, kind of energy stored in your nervous system, emotions, uh, things you've long repressed or avoided and forcing you to confront them so you can make more space within yourself to either heal and integrate these things. And that is a radical shift from what we're used to. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll also just like expand awareness of the possibility of transforming yourself, of the possibility of real healing and of, um, and the value of it. And it's like, wow, I can do this and I can radically change my life by doing this work on myself. And mm -hmm. it's something that I have to push through myself and do. And so I think that's such a great perspective shift that's so, so needed. Because obviously, you know, there's existing treatments and drugs have just been doing a really bad job. There's a lot of evidence for that. And mm -hmm. so I'm really excited for psychedelics to kind of almost not only democratize like uh, healing and, and so on, but also just mm -hmm. even with people who don't use psychedelics to show them the possibility of it and the value of it. I feel like there's, um, there's like multiple truths here. So on one hand, it's like super empowering where people have access to this medicine, um, it for accessibility being like a broadly defined term. 
Um, and at the same time, I think about like the shamanic practices and, um, you know, like almost like ayahuasca tourism that's happening. Right. And, um, there's, there's almost like two sides of the coin that I'm looking at. Like one is from the person going into ceremony, like, um, just hearing, oh, my friend did ayahuasca and, and sat with ayahuasca and this was the experience they had. And, oh, I think it's going to help with, for me. And I'm just going to go right. And doing very little research, like just diving right in and like, who knows, like maybe that is the best path for them, but maybe not. And, you know, like not necessarily knowing how to research, like, you know, the level of care that's being provided in ceremony, prep work, integration, et cetera. And then on the other side, I also think about like the communities that have practiced um, with these medicines for centuries and what this could mean for them, right? With the westernization of the tools that belong, like in my opinion, they belong to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really tough situation. I mean, there's so much wisdom in these traditions, so much to be learned, right? And I think just the fact that um, one, these, uh, medicines, as most people call them, a lot of people call them are just construed as illegal, hard drugs is just a testament to our culture's closed, closed offness to these kinds of experiences and altered states and that kind of healing. Um, and so I think there's so much value in these traditions that have not come from that perspective ever and have really honored them and created context and rituals around them to help support their, their effects. Right. Um, and it's this like dance that, you know, where Westerners, if you want to call them Westerners, are, they need this healing. They, they recognize that we live in a very quite sick culture, which breeds mental illness and breeds all sorts of issues. And therefore these medicines are so needed for them. But then, as you said, it's like, oh, I heard a friend did it. I'm just going to very haphazardly go into the Amazon and do it now. And again, this is a, a testament to lack of education. People just don't know. Because this concept of this, these powerful medicines is not a thing. And so they don't know what they're getting stuff into. And then maybe they go there and have a beautiful time. Maybe it blows them open and they destabilize and it's a rough time as well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's no clear answers here apart from this greater education, uh, informing people on the real, uh, you know, risk benefits, optimal context, optimal use of these substances. And um, also acknowledging um, the indigenous knowledge to whatever extent we can and, and reciprocating as well, trying to support these other indigenous, um, you know, tribes or, or groups in these other countries and whatever we can. Um, because it is a big problem of, for example, you know, retreat centers and the areas around them in South America becoming basically gentrified because now all these Westerners are coming with lots of money and buying all the things and, uh, prices go up and then locals can't even function in the way they used to because they're being pushed out of their own area because of all these tourists, right? Classic. And so that, that's also something that's like really hard to navigate and how to, how to restrict that and make sure there's respect and balance. And these are very tough things. There are no easy answers to. Yeah. It's, I think like it starts with the acknowledgement, like the acknowledgement that like it's possible to come into something with the intention of doing good and inadvertently create harm and being willing to like sit with that mm -hmm. and to, it starts with acknowledging that there could be, there are downsides or risks involved. Um, and I feel like 
just from my experience um, in some of the spaces I've been in, like I think about in like the Western medical world, we like talk about informed consent. And it's like, you know, when you're walking into like a space where there's going to be a practice of ceremony and connecting with like plant medicine, like I feel like you should know what you're walking into and you should know like what you just said, like this could just like blow your entire life up. And like people should know that they for support coming, like what is the right support they may need to access like coming out of it, like and be given those tools. Um, and I'm just wondering from, cause I know you've done some exploration. Have you come across any spaces where you felt that was being done well, or do you, and if not, what are the opportunities based on your like scientific background that you feel could be brought into those spaces to help them become truly more safe? Because I, I like to say like, there's no such thing as a safe space and a safe space, not a safe space, just because you called it a safe space. So like, we're very curious around how do people who want to do good, they want to hold space, they want to share these tools and practices with others to support them in their healing journey, how can they do it in a more responsible way? I think the answer is to definitely do some form of training, learn under people who've gone farther than them. And, and, but then that, that leads to the question of who are you going to trust to train with, right? And there's not easy answers. Like, I know it, it depends on the substance or the medicine that people use. Um, I personally have only sat in ayahuasca with shamans who are trained in the Peruvian Shipibo tradition. Um, and cause I respect that lineage and their approach to ayahuasca. Um, I'm sure the Santo Daime church has, has good practices too, but it's quite distinct from the Shipibo trade shamans. And, and then in terms of just like some random, you know, white dude from the States who wants to hold ceremonies, I would never do one with them in that kind of a context. Um, and so I think just, uh, and that's, that's my own preference. It's not necessarily anything wrong with that, I suppose, but you just know it, the level of support and, um, that thoughtfulness is going to vary. And so with ayahuasca, I really, you know, emphasize, I, I personally would emphasize trying to seek out somebody who's trained in some kind of lineage and, um, and also obviously always looking into testimonials and people who have sat with them and so on. And then, um, with psilocybin, it's a bit tough because like it's, it's, Obviously, it originates in Central America and uh, its ritual ceremonial use, but those lineages are not very visible, not as much as the ayahuasca lineages. So it's much, people often don't use psilocybin in that kind of a similar ritual cultural context, apart from the ritual context of lying on a couch with eye shades on and music, which is its own culture, its own context, right? And so um, with psilocybin, it's hard to say. Uh, um, about how to seek out facilitators, but there are a lot of retreat centers that are well known on the internet and have a lot of testimonials, often quite expensive though, um, in places like uh, Jamaica, for example, has a lot of them, uh, also Costa Rica and so on. And then uh, with 5-MeO-DMT, if you're familiar with that, it's, it's probably the most powerful of them. And I really, really respect, I have friends who run a retreat center in uh, Tepatzlan in Mexico, uh, Tendava retreats, and they also doing a uh, practitioner training program on 5-MEO and I'm on their advisory board. So conflict of interest right there, I suppose. But I, I, I think they're really great and uh, they do it, they function at a very high level and approach it with a lot of care and 
awareness of all the things we're talking about. And I think they set a really good standard for training and approach to um, any psychedelic medicine. And so Tendava Retreats and their platform is called Five. Um, and so I think they do a really great job there. And so, yeah, I mean, that's as much as I can say. It's it's a tough thing. There's no repository with, uh, you know, with here are the reliable, that I know of necessarily, there actually might be, it's kind of think of it, of use the reliable retreat centers and clinics and go to these places. Um, it's really like word of mouth, doing your research, testimonials, is there a lineage attached to it? Um, you know, that lineage can be scientific, I suppose. Is this is a scientific or indigenous lineage, you know? And, and also recognizing that not this one retreat center is not going to work for everybody. You need to know what's good for you. What do you resonate with? What do you feel like you need at this particular time? If you need more medical support and you're concerned about your, your physical safety, maybe try to do something that's more medicalized. If you're, if you're, if you, if that pushes you away, then go somewhere that's less of that, right? There's like, it's, it's different for everybody, I think. Mm, it's so interesting to me. I, I laughed earlier because, you know, with my own, with my own journey, I have experienced, I think a handful of like, I would, I would consider to be some of the more common experiences, which, you know, I go online and I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook and I now I'm getting, because of the, the areas that I'm interested in, I get ads for psilocybin um, that I can get sent to me and I get ads for retreats where there's going to be like a multitude of different plant medicines served. And, you know, it's just a bunch of, of people from, you know, wherever they're, they're not fully trained, but they're going to implement these, um, these ceremonies. Um, and that's neither here nor, nor there, but I think for me, experiences that I've had have been um, coming from a place of a lack of education and just kind of going in trusting, um, having some experiences that were maybe less beneficial to me than others, and then having my first, you know, opportunity to actually sit in ceremony with a plant medicine. And my mind immediately saying, oh, this is what was missing. Like, this is, I feel really safe here. And that journey taking me to a totally new place um, of, of true deep healing and then the integration afterwards and the conversations afterwards and, and how my body felt. And it just such a stark difference than, um, than taking psilocybin at my house and not really knowing what I was doing, which I also, you know, I don't want to like say anything bad about it too, because I, I've also done that and also gained a lot of benefit from that on my own. Um, but I laughed earlier because I think that this conversation needs to be had. And I think when we're having it right now, it, it feels like common sense. But as somebody who lived in that world where I didn't have the knowledge prior and then just kind of went forward off of Instagram ads and what my friends were telling me, um, it has been an interesting journey. And I'm, I'm excited to, to hear what you're having to say right now because it's giving people an opportunity to have a window right into a different um, experience than maybe they've had in the past or maybe a different experience than they're exposed to and giving them the tools that they might need to be able to then go and do a deeper level of research and actually be exposed to things that will resonate with them in a deeper way or even the, the sheer knowledge that they should feel a resonance, right? Um, I think that sometimes we forget when we're in these spaces that um, when you're starting from from scratch, when you're starting from a place where you don't know anything at all, that you perhaps don't even know that you need to feel that resonance or that you should be looking for some of these things. So I really appreciate that conversation. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Because, you know, when you take a psychedelic for healing purposes, you're going to get put into some of the most vulnerable, open and difficult 
places you've ever been in, in your life, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's not something to be taken lightly. And you should really, really know what environment you're going to be in in that context. Because you're very easily, um, if you're around malicious people, they have, they can have a lot of power over you and it could really mess you up. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to be super careful about these things. Can we maybe actually speak a little bit more to that? Would you be open open to kind of pulling that thread a bit. I think that there is um, an occurrence now where, where there's a lot of retreat spaces where where plant medicine is brought into the fold without without ceremony or without much um, preparation. Could you talk a little bit about maybe the implications of an experience such as that where it, it maybe isn't um, intentional and ceremonial? Definitely. So, I mean, it really depends on the individual person, where, they at, where they're at in their own journey, what have they tried it before, and what their intention is, what they're trying to get out of it, right? I don't want to knock having fun and doing mushrooms in the forest or even at a festival. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that if you do it responsibly, you know what you're doing. Um, but I think in terms of just using it with a group of people, not really knowing what you're doing and taking maybe a high dose and not even knowing what dose is a high dose, that is very dangerous, right? Because the thing with psychedelics is they're, like how I see them, is they're inherently neutral. They're not going to just automatically take you to the blissful states of oneness with the universe and of insight into yourself. They can take you into some of the deepest, darkest pits of anxiety and fear you've ever experienced in your life. You know, you can, you can go there. And, and so, and we know from so much research that, you know, psychedelics are the drug plus context, set and setting. And the set and setting in context is just as important, maybe even more important than the actual drug, right? And that, and within the set and setting in the context is the ritual, is the container that's created. And so I think for people who go in haphazardly and they're not grounded in themselves, they don't have a strong attention, they don't feel necessarily safe and secure, they might feel like other people might judge them. Um, and then the environment is a bit unpredictable. You don't know if some new person who's not on the drug is gonna come in and start talking to you or you're going to suddenly be asked to do something or, um, or just the vi- environment itself is maybe dark. It doesn't look very nice. These things are going to have massive effects. You have to really pay attention to all these things. Um, cause again, it's going to amplify your sensitivity, amplify what's going around. These contexts are going to push into your experience. These contexts, contextual factors, as I want to call them, that sounds too scientific. So I was avoiding it, but, uh, drive you towards particular experiences and you got to be really aware. And that's why psychedelics get a bad rep. People use them irresponsibly, have bad experiences, and then they generalize saying they always beat these experiences, which is just not the case. What really came to me was um, this concept of like, you can call it Westerners going into like ancient practices with their Western mindset of like, I'm going to take this thing and use it for my benefit. And what came to me as you were sharing was like, I think part of the solution to what we're talking about is getting into relationship with the tool, with the medicine. And instead of thinking like, I'm going to use you to make me feel better, actually treating it with more reverence And I think that's what we see more in the indigenous practices. And I feel like perhaps that's sort of like where the miss is. It's like 
just that almost like capitalist type mentality, colonial capitalist mentality of like, I'm going to take this thing, I'm going to extract it and use it for my benefit. I'm going to walk away. And you, t- you talked about um, just being reciprocal, right? And, and giving back to the community. And so what I hear is like, there is a call for a higher level intention. If you are going to go into the Amazon, like, are you thinking about what the impact is of your like footprint? Are you thinking about what you are, like you are receiving from this community? What are you giving back? And like, is like, are you listening to what they need? Like not you coming in with that very like colonial view of like, I'm going to give you what I think you need. And so like, I, I feel like maybe that is where the shift in the mindset like lies. And like, if I'm, I'm wondering if we were to sort of sit with that, what solutions would come from there? Because it, it's a it's a required shift in thinking, I think. Yeah, it's so deeply ingrained culturally, right, in the Western context that, um, you know, nature, everything's out there. It's there to be exploited and used for our own gain, right? And it's embedded, yeah, within capitalism, just the whole, yeah, kind of rational materialist mindset since, I don't know, the Enlightenment, right? Which is like, what was that, 17th century, 18th century? Um, and I think it's it's based on a separation from people who are not like us and uh, from nature. And it's like me versus you and all these things. And so I think, you know, it is a major shift in mindset that's needed where rather than seeing nature and others as uh, distinct from us, it's like we're all part of this deeply intertwined whole we're all in it together. We are in nature. We are part of nature. It's ridiculous to separate us from that. And and nature should be honored, right? And I, I think this is such a great such a great thing that comes from these animist kind of uh, worldviews, these indigenous worldviews, which often view the world as imbued with spirit and life and meaning. And so then you're not just gonna take you're not just gonna cut down that tree in your backyard. You're gonna do a ceremony say, you know, uh, you know, we appreciate your existence, offer, offer, you know, acknowledgement of the life of that plant. And, and if you need to cut it down for some purpose, it's going to be like, almost like killing a human, right? It's like you're killing a form of life and you're going to really appreciate and acknowledge the spirit of that plant and what it represents and all of this. And then that translates to plant medicine too, of honoring the plants, right? There's a concept in Amazon, in the Amazon, in, in these like ayahuasca traditions and indigenous traditions of dieting a plant, of trying to really become in tune with a plant and only, for example, drinking the tea of this plant for a month and, you know, with minimal food otherwise, and really trying to absorb the essence of that plant into your system as a way of honoring it and also taking it, you know, allowing its wisdom to come through you and taking something away from it as well. Um, but in a respectful, mutual relationship and again these concepts are so foreign for us it's like oh like let's dig up the oil and use it for our our industry or let's you know oh lots of there's a huge forest that's so much money we can create lumber we can do this and that um and so i think it's really just a slow shift towards that somehow is needed but psychedelics can also help facilitate that i think Uh, psychedelics uh, can help us feel more connected to what's around us, connected to nature. They make our sense of being this individual person and identification with that person expand out to include more people and the world around us and all these things. Because that's ultimately what's needed. You know, humans are emotional beings. We need to feel an emotional connection. We can rationally tell people over and over, 
yes, we're a part of nature. You can't see it extractively. You have to see it in a reciprocal, mutually symbiotic, symbiotic way. You can say that a million times, but if somebody's not feeling it in their body, they're just not going to act on it. You're like, oh, that's a cool idea. I believe in it, but it's not going to be true. And so I think uh, there are various ways to make that true, but I think psychedelics are one way of having the experiential sense of interconnectedness that facilitates that kind of thinking. Um, mm. Yeah. That's super interesting. Um, it's just like a, it's going to make me think. Um, <laughs> but what I was going to say is um, just kind of like touching on what you said about you can just say it but it's a different thing to feel it. And I've definitely been in circles and spaces with folks who say things, they say all the right words, but something feels off. And I've been in spaces where people say all the right words and you can feel the reverence. And um, I do some light dabbling around just like, you know, the colonization of yoga and like how yoga is practiced in the West. And um, what I've learned is like, it's not just something you go and do for an hour. Like yoga is a philosophy to which you live your life. It's the asanas are just one part of the practice. And I feel, um, what I think I've observed when I feel those differences is like the difference is when it feels off, it's because like, it's a one-time thing. And the energy feels like it, like you can feel that it's a one-time thing versus being in a container or space where it's being practiced beyond the container. Like there's something that's different there. Um, and so that was just a really, yeah, interesting revelation that came to me because I always wondered like, why, why do I feel different in different spaces? Like what's going on? And I noticed like whenever I am in spaces that are, are being led by um, people who are like biologically from the lineage that practice the tool, like with the tool, like something does feel different. I've never been able to place it. Well, I think this is, this is where we toe the line between like the science and the spirituality and the mysticism to, for me at least, like I think on those experiences for myself and the second I stepped foot into a ceremonial space, Long before the ceremony began, I felt it, right? I felt that that shift. I felt that energy in the ground beneath my feet when I got off a bus, you know what I mean? And so that's where you start to toe that line where it's like, um, there is this world. I'm so curious to hear your perspective on this, right? Because there's the world of science, right? And and it works a very specific way. It's It works a very specific way. And then there's the world of spirituality and mysticism. And it's it's the flip side, the other side of the coin, you know, and, and I, yeah, I, it's fascinating to me how it might be bridged. And I'm curious to hear from you too, like areas where you feel restricted and areas that might feel expansive because, um, in my experience, there's, there's no way to separate the two, right? There's no way to separate the fact that this incredible experience, this plant medicine, um, has created healing on a physiological, psychological level for me. And there's also, I, you can never separate the fact that the experience itself was its own mystical journey. And so I'm, I think I'm curious to hear more from you, how you toe that line, where you might feel restricted, where it might feel expansive and where that opportunity around that bridge kind of can occur. 
Definitely. Yeah, it's a big question. I, I think uh, on, on the science side, it's important to acknowledge there's so many limitations of science, of how, you know, of intrinsic to the scientific method and just how science and academia works, right? Intrinsic to the method is um, there, these kind of deep subjective experiences that people have that we all have, like life is inherently subjective. It's all happening to us, right? Um, and what we call objective is intersubjective, is we agreed upon between us, right? And, but there's so much that's kind of locked into our own internal experiences that we can try to study with scientific methods, which will always fall short. We have to simplify, we have to operationalize as the lingo goes and try to find a way to make it concrete and measurable. Um, but how can you reduce a, the complex, rich experience of being a human to a set of numbers and abstractions and ex expect that we're really getting at it in a true deep way, right? And then the danger lies is when we then say, those abstractions are real, our experience is not real. We're denying the depth and breadth of our experiences um, and just limiting it to what's objectively or quantitatively accessible. And that's, you know, a lot of science is doing that. And, you know, part of the, the trick of science is trying to find clever ways to be able to measure things, but they always fall short of the actual thing they're measuring, right? And there's certain things that are just so deeply subjective and not, and unreliable that you can't, uh, study it with science. For example, all these mystical experiences, they're not necessarily, you know, um, they're different for everybody. They don't, they're not necessarily occurring the same way all the time. They're not going to occur as consistently as we want them to be. Um, and so then we need to find abstractions that group them together, but then you're missing all the nuance and detail, right? And so like, that's just an example of how science can never kind of get into these airy, deep, subjective experiences. And science as a whole is only coming to even look at that stuff in the last 10 years, 15 years. Before that, it's like very basic processes in terms of psychology and um, things that are very objective and externally observable. And so you know, science has those, has those uh, fundamental limitations. And um, I think also politically, like soci socially and politically, you know, academic research is so, um, there's so much gatekeeping. You know, there's frameworks and models and leading researchers who just lead the charge. And if your research doesn't fit with them and you're super anomalous out, you know, out there with some crazy findings, you know, you're either going to be made fun of, you're going to be seen as an unreliable researcher, you can be ostracized, you can be viewed as fringe, or you're just not going to be able to publish because, you know, you're not going to fit the standard narrative and you're not going to fit into the research context. And science is so incremental as well. And so you get this incremental slow march of the known of what we think we know, or like what we provisionally know, which is constrained by the models and frameworks and theories that exist, which themselves are constrained by the older, more senior researchers who don't let the new ones create, create radically new models that don't fit in. And so there's this whole set of constraints on what, where science is going, how fast it moves, not to mention funding and money and all these things. And, and pressures to publish, to get a job. Like there's so many factors that go into science that limit what it looks like, how fast it moves, and what it acknowledges as true and real. And then, you know, you come into the spiritual, uh, mystical side, people are having profound experiences all the time um, that don't fit into the model. And, but then they're told they're not real because they don't fit in the model. But that's silly because science is, as I just have just said, intrinsically to that method, it's limited and how it's practices, there's additional limitations. And so there's so much um, that they just doesn't, it's not able to get to. 
And we can't deny the validity or reality of these other things because science is just not not getting there fast enough. And so I think, I think you know, in terms of how they can be more bridged, it's just like the radical um, openness of science, having a radical sense of openness and kind of understanding that our current state of understanding is just a particular point of history. We're not complete. There's so much we don't know. Uh, we're so limited in so many ways. This is just what we seem seems to fit together so far based on our limited, constrained knowledge. Um, and anything, so much more is possible outside of that. And embracing the mystery of life and of mysticism and all these things and and seeing how that represent that can enrich the understanding of science and show science ways it can expand. Um, and in this mutual dance where, you know, the, the, the positive aspects of science is having reliable knowledge that, that can be used for technology and used in these different ways, but then also acknowledging there's so much beyond that. I just have to say that, that, that what you just said makes me so hopeful and so excited. And Joe and I had a brief conversation this morning around hope. Uh, we were talking a little bit. I have a couple of friends that are in the psychotherapy space um, and they're all kind of doing it in a different way. There's, I have a friend who's a magical psychotherapist who uh, leans heavily on Jungian psychology and a lot of dream work. And um, we have a lot of conversations around DSM and, and limitations and psychology. Uh, and I was talking to Joanne this morning about my curiosity around the future and how it will change as, um, you know, as people take wellness into their own hands and, and the paradigm does shift more and more. And what can this look like in 10, 20, 50, 100 years? What is psychology and mental wellness going to look like? And um, I think despite limitations that are currently existing, when we have conversations like this, I know for me personally, I am extremely excited. I got my undergrad degree in psychology 10 years ago. And in the last 10 years, the amount of things that have shifted and changed from what I learned to what's available now is extraordinary. And having these conversations with people who are embedded in the field right now, um, it, it, brings a tremendous amount of hope for me and curiosity around what the landscape will look like in the future. Mm -hmm. For sure. It's exciting times. These things are starting to come together and you see much more use of uh, words like mystical or spiritual in scientific research as it's trying to, it's starting to breach into that territory, but so mm -hmm. early, such early stages still. Yeah. So. It feels like, I feel like anything can happen. Mm -hmm. Like, on one hand, I see like we're, we could be on this path to like complete destruction. <laughs> the, other half, the other side, I'm like, oh, we actually have hope. Um, I wanted to ask a bit about um, just the role of the pharmaceutical industry and the mainstreaming of of psychedelic use in, in therapy spaces in, in like the Western medical model. Um, I come from a mindset of like, <laughs> I could be wrong. So I'm open to, to being challenged of, you know, you get what you incentivize and in our capitalist model, like what's incentivized is profit. Right. And so I have this like looming question that I reflect on all the time, which is like, does the pharmaceutical industry, does the healthcare industry, particularly, you know, I, I'm Canadian, but like in America in particular, do they really have an incentive to 
to get people well. Because, you know, like I think the ultimate, like what we're talking about is if that was to come to fruition, the ultimate state is that we would be healthier. We would be not just like being mentally healthier will help us arrive at like a better physical, economic, like Mm -hmm. healthier situation. I don't know how to frame that well. So like, I also think like consumerism, like all the things that we're seeking outside of us will be impacted as we access higher states of consciousness. And so does the machine actually have the incentive to help us? Mm -hmm. I'd say no, not really, right? Not on a (laughs) wide scale. That wouldn't be good because then everyone would be so healthy that they're not going to consume all the nonsense that they consume and and in like, you know, pour their money into the economy and all these kinds of things. And, and also, yeah, there's like huge pressure for people not to be well, so they can stay on drugs indefinitely and keep, um, you know, giving their money to their doctors or these big pharma companies that are worth what, like hundreds of billions of dollars. And it's a tough situation where, yeah, healing is not profitable. Healing, you don't want something just to get better and never come back. You want a return customer. You want that to be a revolving door, right? And, but it's like, how can we, I think it's not going to happen all at once, right? So it's not like the next day, oh, everyone's healed. We're going to shut it down. It's going to be such an incremental process. So the question is, how is the system going to adapt on the fly to accommodate that? And I think there already is, for example, a movement towards, you know, adapt, adaptogens and, uh, uh, you know, different supplements and things that are helped to complement and support an already healthy lifestyle, right? So if people are healthy, then it's like, oh, what's the, what's the next level here? And so I think that's where the kind of the path lies. It's like right now we're in this model of like, you know, just removing pathology. People are unhealthy. How can we get them to be healthy? And as more people are conceiving themselves as healthy, which, you know, when's that, when that's going to happen, when that tipping point's going to happen, it's going to still a bit far off given the state of the world. But when that does happen, then it's like the nature of humans is that we're, most people are not going to be satisfied. So it's like how to take it to the next level. And so I think humans will always expand. And I think we're only at a very small, uh, you know, fraction of our potential as humans. Obviously, there are people who are up there, but as a whole, we're like way down, way down there. And so I think as more people heal, the kind of standard approach of using drugs to get from disease to health is going to be partially replaced more and more between health and super health, you know, health and flourishing and thriving, baseline and flourishing and thriving. And that's like the ideal trajectory, I think. And, but along the way, there'll have to be a dramatic restructuring of economic systems and, you know, where people are pouring their money and how ads and all this kind of stuff work. And again, it's going to be incremental. This whole thing is going to be very incremental over decades. And that's the best possible scenario that we're going that path, you know, but I think psychedelics, these things and these different modalities towards healing help push us towards that. But I do think. It will have, you know, it will happen and it, it, but it's going to be very incremental and there's going to be system, like systemic shifts that are needed and institutional shifts that are also needed along the way. Mm-hmm. So here is this call to like, which we talk about all the time is like, instead of being against the system or trying to destroy it, how do you build the new thing that will emerge? And I feel like what's necessary is more conversations of like, what could the new economic paradigm look like? And I was having a conversation with someone yesterday about the concept of degrowth and like our our current economic model is based on the assumption that growth is better. And 
infinite growth. And so is that really true? Right. And that, that enters into the conversation of like circular economy, like circular systems, regenerative business. And so I think that ties into like other conversations that we're hoping to have on this, this, this platform, which is the business side of things. Like how do we build that new economy? Because we're going to need it mm-hmm. if we're going to continue to go down that path. Um, I, I had a thought because you talked about like recurring business and I see this because like as a business owner, as a coach, right? Like I also want recurring business. And so sometimes I think about, you know, like when I go to, for example, Tony Robbins event, like you're being sold the next thing and then you're being sold the next thing and then the next thing. And that's what I'm starting to observe in the coaching, healing, spiritual realm. And I'm really curious about what your thoughts are on like the highs and lows, like emotional highs and lows that people might experience, whether it's in ceremony or in just in general, being in these spaces, participating in a personal development program, like, um, and almost like the addiction, like the emotional addiction that can come with that, I'm, and I'm, I'm specifically, have you done any Tony Robbins stuff? I think you have, right? Well, I've read his books, listened to his stuff, but I haven't been to his in-person okay. events. Not yeah, yet. so like, I, I mean, I don't know enough about like the neuroscience, but like, I do know that in general, like there is such thing as like a retreat high or like a, like a experience that you get probably like high levels of serotonin and like other things. And so I'm just really um, interested in like almost the science behind why someone might be, um, they could get hooked on always coming back for more and seeing themselves like a project, right? Like I believe in evolution. I believe that we, everything in nature grows, everything evolves, everything's always changing, but there is a fundamental difference between that and trying to constantly fix yourself or not feel enough. and it could be so easy to get hooked into it. And Rachel works in marketing. And so like, I, I can tell you firsthand, like people use marketing tactics in these spaces to keep you coming back. Mm-hmm. And so it's this really interesting dissonance because while I agree that they're doing great work, you know, it's almost like a different version of consumerism. And I'm just like super curious about like, A, is there science behind anything I said? and like your perspective (laughs) yeah for sure this is a really important point right because there's this great instagram page called healing from healing and it's just you know we love it yeah i love yeah adam the guy leads that yeah it's so great like i i love yeah i love his stuff um and it is this concept of well it comes boils down to on one side chasing peak experiences right and this occurs in all contexts and um, and even like taking a hard drug can be experienced in the body as a peak experience. That's you know essentially what it's creating for somebody artificially in that context, right? And so I think these peak experiences, you might get upregulation of like you know of of dopamine, of, of serotonin, of things like endogenous opioids, like endorphins, things that just give you euphoria, make you feel like everything is good, and um, and you get supercharged after these events, right? I'm sure, you know, going to Tony Robbins event, I can only imagine the amount of energy he pumps in these places, right? They're and that's fun. what does the work. Yeah. <laughs> you're just super charged up and you probably have trouble sleeping because you're just on fire the whole time. And and so 
people love these. And so naturally, if um, your usual life is not that level, you want to chase those peak experiences, right? And I think uh, often the contrast between these beautiful containers and retreats and things and your everyday life can lead you to think there's something wrong with you. And so you continually search for these peak experiences. It's like, why, why don't I have a sustained peak experience my entire life? There must be more to do. So I think that's part of it. And, and then also, um, as you're saying, intrinsic to these things is that you're gonna, you're never done. It's like, oh, you're, you're done. You're good. You know, you're healed. Um, and, and so there's always an, an intrinsic incentivization to go and do more trainings and up level more and more and more and heal that additional trauma. Like, oh, you even opened your heart fully. Oh, this, your, your, your fourth chakra, your, this chakra, you know, there's more and more things. And, but, and so I think that whole model is partially human nature of always trying to wanting to seek more and not being dissatisfied and being able to imagine and think about how things can be better and therefore wanting it, creating that desire. So that's the nature of the mind to do that. Um, but then also these things are amplified by the fact that we live in a capitalist culture. And so people need to make money and you make money through returning customers. You make money by keeping them in your ecosystem and keep on driving up revenue. You always want to grow your revenue. You can't stay stable because then you're losing, you know, that's the whole idea. And, and everyone, you know, me, you, like I'm sure both of you, like we live in this world because that's what you need to, to operate and be successful. You have to play the game uh, or you could just drop out, but like, that's, you know, nothing against doing that, I suppose. But if you want to live in society and play the game, that's, that's, you got to play it by those rules. And so this is why I think, you know, uh, the incremental process I was talking about before of slowly moving into different perspectives on the economy and uh, value generation and, and relationship to wealth and infinite growth and all these kinds of things. You need deep internal shifts, but we need them collectively, you know, starts with smaller groups and then expands and gets bigger and bigger until, until it influences everybody more or less. And, um, so I think this is a necessary evil of the current point we're at, like, you know, late capitalist society of monetizing every, everything and, and just being kind of ridiculous in the extent of that. Um, but things progress, things change, culture is changing, perspectives on things are changing slowly but surely. And who knows what it's going to turn into. But um, I do think everything you're saying is kind of a necessary evil at this point just have to be aware of it. Us even pointing it out as a thing and saying it is a big, is a big step, right? Of acknowledging. And, um, and yeah, it'll go where it needs to go. But as far as I'm concerned, ultimately the most powerful thing a person can do and the real purpose of personal growth is self-acceptance, you know, cause these, the concept that you need more comes from a sense that you're not enough. But what if you felt intrinsically you're enough then you know, you're not being pulled by external forces because how could they have power over you if you're not, right? So it's like, okay, how can I become intrinsically enough? That that should be the, the question. I would say the greatest theme of our entire first season of this podcast has been how can we, how can we have deeper relationship with the world through cultivating deeper relationship with ourselves? And this theme has come up organically in every single episode that we've recorded. And it is no surprise to me that that you just brought it up just now. I would say another undercurrent has been the question of when is enough enough? What is too much when talking about conscious capitalism and consumerism? 
Um, and I think these things keep coming up because they are extremely prevalent uh, today in our environments. Um, and I would be remiss to ask you, you, you mentioned this off camera when we first introduced ourselves to each other, um, kind of this idea of expansion of psychedelics, the psychedelic impact on human evolution and expansion and the possibilities beyond. Um, and I have no insight into that. So I just really wanted to give you an opportunity to maybe share a little bit about, I don't know, maybe not even a perspective, but what the dream is uh, and what, what you foresee as a possibility in tandem with psychedelics as we embark on that journey as humans. For sure. So right now, they're, if we look in the mainstream scientific medical context, they're seen as a mental health treatment, right? This is the framing that we're using. Uh, they're helping people who have depression, anxiety, substance use problems get back to being healthy. So then they could be functioning members of the economy, you know, and, and good capitalist workers and et cetera. That's the framework because that's also how health is defined, you know, in like this very neoliberal kind of capitalist way. And, but that's such, you know, the fact that we're viewing these profound compa compounds or medicines that can induce these, ex you know, high level peak experiences in oneness with the universe and infinite love and all these things. The fact that we're framing it as a mental health treatment says so much about our culture, right? That we're, we're almost like bastardizing them and limiting them to that. It's kind of an insult to call them that to some extent. And, and so I think. Well, you know, how can they be used in a broader way? And what that means for me is like, um, like how I approach psychedelics. Like I, I don't consider myself pathological in any way, but I still pursue ayahuasca ceremonies. I still pursue these different modalities. I still, you know, go to healing kind of retreats and journeys and so on. It's like, what am I looking for? What's there? Like, shouldn't I be good? I'm healthy, right? But again, there's, I think, difference between health and thriving and flourishing and living your full potential. And so I think, what I hope to see is that in the future, we move away from this medicalized pathology-based model of, um, of using psychedelics or just in terms of mental health treatments in general um, towards how can we use this as for people to, to have greater insight into themselves, to have better relationships, to live a life of more meaning and purpose, to overcome internal limitations, whether they're internalized beliefs from childhood or, you know, other things related to relationships with their family system or primary caregiver, et cetera. Um, there's so much that can be done of, of creating more harmony within ourselves and of living a more meaningful life beyond just being healthy. And there's a lot of obviously books and literature on this stuff, but it's just not recognized in the mainstream. It's not, in, it's not embedded within institutions, right? At all. Um, it's not even, we're not even there yet because the people running these institutions are not there yet a lot of the time, right? And so what I hope to see is with the initial wave of medicalized psychedelics, as self-transformation and healing becomes more wide, widespread, more people are getting healthy, more people are collectively going to be asking, okay, what's next? How do I expand even more? And I think by being healthy and being shown the journey from not being healthy to healthy, you can just see the expansion uh, that's possible even beyond that. And so you can't ignore that at that point because you know, like, wow, I could transform myself. I'm so much more happy and fulfilled than I was before, but I know there's still things I need to work on. I'm not perfected. So, you know, how can I, from a place of self-acceptance, self um, also acknowledge that 
there's more that can be done to have a richer life and then ultimately give back in service to the world. So I think that's the marker of a developed human being of is switching from how can I get more to how can I do more to help others? That's the mark of development, right? And I think more and more of that with, I think, ideally I'd love to see in 10 years, let's say psychedelic centers where anybody can go, um, you can go for personal health, healing, growth, whatever, um, and be supported in these holistic models to advance different aspects of your life, whatever you're looking for. And to have those institutionalized in healthcare systems and just normalized throughout the world, like that would be huge. Mm, I love that. I love that. I was once in a room with someone who shared this like vision of there being like healing, like heart healing centers at every corner, like there is a McDonald's and it's like, I'm not feeling well, like I'm going to go into this space. And I just feel like, you know, anything's possible, right? It's, it's up to us to see how we can create it. And so I think that's such a beautiful um, vision. One of the things that we've been trying to cultivate is um, providing our listeners with like practical tools that they can use. They can take, you know, it's one thing, like you said, to listen to these things and like understand them intellectually. Um, what does your practice around like self-acceptance and just like your mental health look like? Um, what are some tools or practices you think that, um, particularly someone who may be newer to this space, like what do you think could help based on your experience? Uh, a major part of my journey in my, throughout my twenties has been, participating in a men's group, actually. Uh, and I obviously, I, I, you know, I was a member for about a year and a half and I led a group for about four years. So weekly groups, three hours a week, every week for like four years, I led this group and, and also participated as a member. And I think, so a major part of a lack of self-acceptance is shame and people carry around a shit ton of shame. And that drives a lot of things that people do. Um, you know, it's very good common and absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's part of being human. But I think the best way to overcome shame is to practice being vulnerable and revealing yourself and allowing yourself to be seen uh, with people you trust and you feel safe with. And so for me, these men's groups were an, uh, kind of a platform every week for from age 23 until last August, and I'm 29 now. Um, so like throughout my 20s, uh, going every week and just place where I could share very openly. These are my fears, insecurities, uncertainties, anxieties, troubles in relationships, tr uncertainties around career, um, and also hear everyone else. And being in these kinds of containers, you realize one, everyone ha is fucked up. Everyone has their problems and traumas and issues and insecurities and shames and all these things. Two, they're not nearly as different than we think they are. Everyone is so similar. We share so many similar things. We all keep it hidden with a lot of shame and energetic charge. Um, for no reason, when you just share it openly, people you're going to be, if you're with people who are also open and conscious and aware and, you know, are genuinely good people who are trying to work on themselves, they'll also reflect back to you. Like, you know, I feel, I resonate with your experience. Thank you so much for sharing. It's very beautiful that you're open to sharing that. Um, and I think that diffuses a lot of shame that drives self-rejection. So I think for, like looking into your local communities and seeing whether there are these kinds of spaces. Obviously, I'm a man, so a men's group, but it could be, uh, you know, both men and women. It could be women's circles. It could be um, any kind of uh, mental health oriented groups, perhaps, or spiritual group. It's places where pe with genuine open people 
who create a safe space where you can share. And then also having the courage to share. Because you can sit in one of these groups, go to that meeting every day for a year and not even make any progress because you're letting your, your fears and anxieties, you know, hold you back. So there's so much courage needed to, to accept yourself. It really is. It takes a lot of courage and pushing through anxiety and fear. And so for me, like that community-based uh, work is so important. Um, and then personally, uh, on a personal level, like I've been a daily meditator since I was like 19 and meditation is a major part of my life of being aware of my own internal process and having some distance from it and having more stability within myself so I can do this work more effectively. So that's been really big for me. I love affirmations. I do affirmations all the time. Just write out things in the present tense, like I am X, X Y, and Z. I do that a lot. Visualization is really powerful. There's this amazing book, which goes really well with what I've been talking about, called Psycho-Cybernetics. Um, I, I forgot the first name, but I think the last name is Maxwell. This is a book from like the 60s or 70s, which basically contains all of the subsequent self-help whole literature in, in like in like more pure form before all of that came out, right? A lot of self-help books are just regurgitating the same information, right? But this was like before all of that, talking deeply about self-image and self-acceptance and the power of visualization. So Psycho-Cybernetics, that is a really good book and it made an impact on me. Speaking to the power of visualizing, you know, you know, feel as if you've already achieved your goal and make that feeling as strong as you can within yourself and do that on a consistent basis and that will become true, right? That's the idea. That's manifestation as well, basically. Um, so that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I think those three things, meditation, mindfulness, awareness, um, visualization, and then pushing your limits of fear and anxiety around sharing and, and connecting deeply with other people in safe settings. I think those three things go a long way. Mm, it's incredible. So powerful. Thank you for that. Yeah. I have a question that may take us really deep. <laughs> um, if you're willing to share, and I actually would love to like go around and all respond to this question, um, which is like, what just, what is a thing that you're working on around accepting about yourself? <laughs> and so I'll go first since I asked the question. <laughs> Um, they literally had a coaching session about this this week with my coach. Um, and I really want to, uh, my heart's racing. I really want to, um, emphasize what you said about courage. Mm -hmm. So this week with my coach, like we, I've been working with my coach for three years now. We mostly talk about business. Sometimes we talk about relationships. Um, and this was the first time I brought like, body image into a coaching conversation because I'm coming up for me a lot and I was like really frustrated that I was having these thoughts because there's a huge part of me that was like I shouldn't think these things they don't make any sense I've done all of this work I've been in this space for like seven eight years now of like personal development I feel like I moved through this like journey of developing a very healthy relationship with my body and then all of a sudden, these like old stories are so loud in my ears, like, and it's it's so energetically draining. And, you know, it took courage for me to, I actually wrote on my form, I've never said that to anyone. I've never approached anyone to say, I need help with this, right? I might have mentioned it to Rachel, I think, and you were probably one of the only people I've ever said that to. And 
I felt so much shame, not about the body, like not about my body, about the thoughts I had about my body. So there's like layers. And so like, I was just, it, it, the two words you brought up were shame and courage. And I think courage is necessary. You can have the community, you can have people around you, but it's still like only you can like pick yourself up and walk through the door, right? You can be right in front of the door with a whole bunch of people who are there to help you and support you. Um, and so it was so interesting moving through that session with my coach and um, she shared with me, like she just reminded me of the practice of like cultivating love for myself. I used to have a very strong practice of cultivating love. And that was, it wasn't like for me, it was moving beyond affirmations and actually feeling love for myself. Like I would sit just like how I would, you know, hug my little sister or like a child and feel like actually feel love in my body for someone else. I would cultivate that for myself for a few minutes every single day. And I haven't done that for a while. And so like within a couple of days of having my coaching session, I felt a huge shift around just like how I view myself, how I feel my body. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's my share. <laughs> Do you want to go first? You want me to go first? (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I can go next. Yeah, one thing I've had on an ongoing basis is similar to you, actually, related to body image. Um, When I was young, like, like I would say fifth grade till ninth grade, I was a bit chubbier. And I've experienced, you know, early high school being made fun of for being chubby and just, like, not feeling attractive to women and all these kinds of things. And then I got into really good shape in like ninth, 10th grade and have been in really good shape since. But still, I, I find myself like often not being satisfied with with my body. You know, even though, you know, six pack, I have, I'm in really good shape. I get compliments all the time. But when I see myself, it's like, oh, like my arms can be more defined. My shoulders can be more broad. Oh, my traps are too small. Oh, you know, uh, things like this. And, and I was like, and I, and I also shame myself by, it's like, why the fuck do I care about this? Why is this a thing for me? Like, this is so childish. And, um, and, and so it's like, for me, it's been just allowing myself to look at myself in the mirror and, uh, and like, look at my body and be like, yes, this is, you know, how good, how, how, how good I look physically is not related to how much people are going to love me or like going to approve of me or going to like me. You know, it's like I, I learned through high school, like what the internalized belief was in order to be enough, I have to be just like super jacked, really fit, attractive person. Otherwise, I'm not going to be not going to be enough. I'm not going to be loved. I'm not going to receive uh, attention or whatever. And that's such an internalized belief. And so it's, I mean, my self-acceptance practice has been, you know, recognizing that People don't like me for my body. Like I'm much more than that. And like I, I, you know, my my self-worth should not be tied up with being extremely fit or like having a particular type of body and that I need to accept and love myself um, as I am, fit body or not. And that in doing that, um, I'll naturally see how other people are also doing the same and I'll attract more of that into my life, right? And so that's that's been, that's still my ongoing practice. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, for me, you know, I I came out of the womb with a big mouth. I've always been a pretty big personality and pretty strong, strong woman. And 
um, you know, by virtue of culture and life experience, um, over the course of 35 years, I have learned that I can be a strong woman, but in order to be a strong woman, I have to do it a certain way. And, and what this has looked like is, is packaging myself in the way that is the nicest, most appeasing, gentle version of myself. Um, one that can raise um, issues, but not be confrontational. One that can be a leader, but not the leader at the top of the, the food chain. And um, something that I am currently wrestling with deeply, Joanne knows about this, um, is the acceptance of my own anger and allowing myself to be angry and allowing myself to share my anger and my disappointment in in whatever circumstance might come up. Um, and that to be angry in a healthy way doesn't mean that I have to express myself in the nicest, most digestible way. Um, and that I can absolutely move through life where I am aiming to always do the least amount of harm, but sometimes the least amount of harm does the most harm to me. And so this journey for me has been, um, unveiling the roots of my own anger and sadness and the expression of those feelings. Um, and I am finding currently that as much of a war as it is for me, because I have 35 years of unlearning in how I express those things that in the small bite-sized, very loud pieces of expression of these feelings, um, I get a little piece of my own power back each time. And so it's a quite, it's quite a messy journey, but it's a mess. It's a journey of empowerment. Um, and there's, I think there's a lot of deeply rooted fear for me in the expression of rage as a woman, um, and, and finding, finding a balance of doing it in a way that doesn't cause harm externally or internally. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I heard this line recently, like uh, something like taking difficult actions leads to a less difficult life. Right? Mm. So it's basically. Mm -hmm. I love that. Mm Hell -hmm. oh, yeah. Well, we have, we have two closing questions. The first one, quite easy. How can people find you uh, online? What are your, your social media handles, your website and beyond so they can um, listen to this podcast and then follow you, support you, connect with you? Mm -hmm, for sure. So on Instagram and YouTube, I'm The Psychedelic Scientist. Um, also on Twitter, but I, use, I don't use Twitter too much these days. It's a bit of a neg negative place. <laughs> um, and also on LinkedIn, just Manesh Gurren on LinkedIn. Um, I have a website that's going to be up and running next week, actually, ManeshGurren.com. So also have that coming. And um, yeah, I suppose that's it for now. That's how you reach me. You want to kick it off? Yeah. What does liberation mean? Mm. The first thing that came to mind was freedom from circumstance. And let me unpack that a little bit. It's kind of to be liberated for me means to be totally um, unperturbed by anything external to myself and to be totally free to feel as I want, think as I want, be as I want, um, completely independent of the circumstances of my life, of anything that's going on. It could be 
a shit show. It could be going amazing. It could be extremely stressful. But if my internal temple is the same and I'm still in that same place of clarity and equanimity and power and internal power, then that's true liberation and you're liberated. Mm, I love that. I love that too. Thank you so much, Manesh. Yeah, yeah my pleasure. Such a cool journey. And I I truly hope that we get a chance to to do it again, have a follow-up at some point. This was super fun, super informative. Mm. And I feel like we went deep in some areas that were unexpected, which is always, always yeah, the intention here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Totally. Thank you both so much. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Definitely happy to come back. You've been listening to the Lenses of Liberation podcast. We are your hosts, Rachel Snyder and Joanne Singh. We hope this conversation has provided you with new insights and inspired actions to create a just and equitable world. It's a joy to be along this journey with you. See you in the next episode.